Welcome to the Best of Making Sense. This is Sam Harris. In this series, we re-air some of the most popular episodes of the Making Sense podcast. These are conversations that we think you'll find just as relevant today as when they were originally released. Siddhartha Mukherjee is an oncologist and researcher. He is an assistant professor of medicine at Columbia University and a cancer physician at Columbia University and NYU Presbyterian Hospital. He's a former Rhodes Scholar. He graduated from Stanford, the University of Oxford, where he got a PhD in studying cancer-causing viruses. And he got his medical degree from Harvard Medical School. His laboratory focuses on discovering new cancer drugs. He's published articles and commentary in such journals as Nature, the New England Journal of Medicine, Neuron, and in publications like the New York Times and the New Yorker and the New Republic. He won the Pulitzer Prize for his book on cancer, The Emperor of All Maladies. And his most recent book, which is the topic of our conversation, is The Gene, An Intimate History. And now I give you Siddhartha Mukherjee. I am here with Siddhartha Mukherjee. Siddhartha, thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, my pleasure. Well, listen, you are uh, you have a great job, it looks like. You're doing amazing things in the world on at least two fronts. I, I just want to start, before we get into your book, I want to start by getting you to describe what it is you do and how much of your time is spent in each of these two careers. You have, you have a career as a physician and as a writer, both at very high levels. So describe what you're doing. So I'm a physician scientist, um, and uh, the particular area I work on is the the is uh, in the clinical realm. I work on uh, leukemias. I'm an oncologist, so I treat cancers. Um, I see patients with cancer. My uh, area within cancer is leukemia and lymphoma, basically uh, cancers of the of blood cells. Although I certainly see other cancers as well and treat other cancers as well. Much of uh, so so that's one aspect of my the physician scientist life. The other part is I do laboratory research. I do basic cancer research. Our laboratory has uh, really a couple of major fronts. We can talk about them, but I work on cancer genetics. Um, we've discovered uh, genes that are implicated in cancers, particularly blood cancers. And we try to use that information about cancers to try to figure out how to treat, uh, make new treatments, and then bring that uh, all of that stuff back to the clinic to sort of make a difference in, um, in human lives. Um, so it's um you know it's been called a bench to bench to bedside but of course it's a, it's a long and complicated route so that's the world i live in i i have a laboratory um actually across the street from where i see patients so um in a in a rather physical sense i'm 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 in the road in between so now i i cut you one job short you have three jobs you're a physician you're a scientist and you're also a writer so to, and how much of your time is spent writing these books we're about to talk about and your New Yorker pieces? The, uh, you know, the time is spent, um, uh, it's very uneven. Um, so, you know, my, my primary life um, is as a physician scientist, but then when the books come, they, you know, the, the birth of a book is like the, uh, the birth of a baby. It, it, the books take over your life for a while. Though sometimes bloodier. <laughs> they take over for, for a while and then and and then they go out into the world and and eventually they sort of take on a life of their own um one thing that's nice is that um, f- for the for the first book emperor of all maladies um 
I then collaborated with Ken Burns um, and a bunch of other people, um, cancer uh, geneticists and cancer biologists, on making a documentary. So I was that that book uh, sort of acquired a second life, um, if you will, um, and that's going to happen with the gene as well. We're going to uh, Ken Burns is again going to do a PBS uh, documentary on the gene. So it's 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 a it's a somewhat it's like a sine curve. You you it goes up for a while, then it dies down for a bit, then goes up for a while, uh, etc. And um, you know, the New Yorker is not the only outlet um, that I write for. I write for um, um, uh, the New York Times Magazine. Actually, I've written much more for them in the past, um, and um, also for other places like Vice, uh, where I uh, do also some editorial work. Um, but really, it's all focused on questions. I, I write pieces not because I'm on salary at any of these places, but because I am interested by when, I, when a topic interests me, or when or when the editors want to excerpt things from the book. Um, is when when those pieces appear that either book excerpts chosen by the editors or they're topics that I initiate because I'm interested in them. Right, right. Well, I want to talk about the gene in particular, your your more recent book. I, I, I have some questions about cancer I'd like to ask you at the end. Unfortunately, I have not read Emperor of All Maladies for which you won the Pulitzer, but I've read the gene and, and that's your more recent book. And that gets to some really fundamental science, obviously, but fundamental questions of human existence and public policy and ethics. And this is as rich a topic as anyone can find in the 21st century. And I want us to move through it fairly systematically because I can assume a fairly or even a very educated audience on this podcast. And in other episodes, I would be happy to use a term like phenotype without bothering to define it. I would just just assume that people can look it up if they're confused. But in this conversation, I think we should do our best not to leave anyone behind on anything because the topics are so fundamental and, and important. That would be great. And, and stop me when you think that, you know, when, when the, the whole point of the book is to minimize jargon. Now, that involves some simplification yeah. uh, necessarily. So we'll try, to, we'll try to cut the right balance. But that, that, that's a tough thing to do because the audience, as you're saying, is simultaneously very sophisticated, but some of the issues here are so fundamental that, that if, we, if we don't, if we gloss over them, I suspect we'll lose sight of uh, very important issues. Yeah, and they're just interesting facts that jump out of even the definition of a word that you are quite sure you understand and, and use without any self-consciousness. Let's start where you, kind of the path you take through the book. It's, it's very much of a, a historical tour of our understanding of the basis of life and inheritance. So you, you trace it from its beginning in really in just philosophical speculation. You start with Pythagoras and Plato and Aristotle, but then it wasn't until Mendel that we arrive at a really a crucial understanding of the, the atomic and information theoretic aspect of inheritance. So let's just remind people about the significance of what Mendel did. Well, if, if, if it's okay with you, let's start with a little before Mendel. Uh, let's start with, uh, with people that you mentioned, Pythagoras, Aristotle, Plato. The question of human heredity, why is it that we look like our parents? Why do we, why do we look unlike our parents? Is a question that really obsessed people, scientists, thinkers, philosophers for generations. And, and, and twinned to that idea, um, and it's very important to, to, to make it very clear, is that even in Plato, even in Aristotle, you have simultaneously the desire to understand heredity 
and a desire to manipulate human heredity. Um, those things come hand in hand. That's one of the messages of the book is that no sooner have you have we begun to understand the principle of or principles of heredity because of the aspirations that we have as humans to guarantee it's some ancient desire clearly but to guarantee the best for our children it, the 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 minute the heredity does not live in abstraction even for a minute it, it immediately becomes concrete it immediately becomes uh, uh, it jumps to life literally um, and, and makes and begins to work its way into fundamental questions about who are we, what do we want to transmit, how, how do we aspire to see ourselves, how do we aspire to see our children? Aristotle wrote about this. Plato wrote about this. They didn't understand what heredity was necessarily in current con uh, scientific conception, but they had strong ideas about it, and those ideas were powerfully twinned to the notion that they would change uh, human beings if we could, if they could manipulate it. Mm. Well, that we're going to get to the topic of eugenics, but. I think the punchline I take away from what you just said is that eugenics on some level is unavoidable. I mean, we all begin attempting to practice it the moment we start thinking about genes. That, that, that's, the, that, that's exactly the point. The point is that um, the aspirations to manipulate genes come directly out of some ancient human desire, which is very related ultimately to, uh, you know, as I said, wanting the best for yourself and your children. So, so, and, and, and we see this pattern recurring over and over again in, 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 in this book. In fact, it's, it's obviously one of the, one of the drivers in this book um, is that, is to realize that, you know, it's not as if in 2017, we've all of a sudden ascended to some kind of higher plane where we've been able to somehow divorce the, or, or, or cut um, our understanding of genetics from our desire to manipulate it. And in fact, it, it's only been amplified. We'll come to these topics. But it's important to underscore them right from the beginning. So on to Mendel. Um, Mendel um, is an important, interesting character um, in this book. Um, the, the the first version of the book didn't begin with Mendel, but I thought that, uh, and and I'll, I'll talk to you about how I reorganize some of these uh, issues. But Mendel is, of course, um, the is a very for me the the most the most obvious way to begin this story. And that's because um, even though Mendel didn't coin the word gene, he performed experiments uh, that allowed him to get to the concept of the gene. Now, who was Mendel? Mendel was a monk. Um, we know, I, I've been to Bruno, I've looked through, you know, whatever papers there are on Mendel, some of them in translation, some of them I had translated from the original Germans. Mendel was a was a monk. Uh, he uh, lived in what is now the, uh, the Czech Republic. Um, most of his lifetime in a city called Bruno, um, which was a, um, a, 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 a city center, a relatively um, active uh, place. Um, the, he, he, was, uh, he lived most of his life in a monastery, and attached to that monastery was a garden. Mendel, the monk, um, like many other uh, monks, parsons, naturally, uh, 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 people who um, certainly were, were part of the, of, of the, of the clergy, was interested in questions of natural science. He was also a natural scientist, um, and he was an Augustinian. In fact, many Augustinians trained in botany, they trained in biology, they trained in geology, and Mendel was, was, was carried this tradition forward. And the question that Mendel asked was a very simple question, which is, um, if, you, uh, if you take uh, hereditary traits um, that, are, that, are, that move across generations, what is the pattern of that movement? Um, is it 
that these traits, once you mix them together, do they blend like a like a wearing blender? Um, or is there something about them that is, or is there something different about them? Now, interestingly, you know, the, the, the dominant theory in Mendel's time was this wearing blender, blender kind of theory, uh, this idea that, that, that uh, and in fact, it makes, makes some intuitive sense. You know, your, your height is some kind of average between your mother and your father. Uh, your, the shape of your nose or the color of your hair is often some kind of average. So it makes a lot of intuitive sense. But of course, it doesn't make entire intuitive sense, because if that was true, you couldn't explain gender. Um, you know, gender is not the average of your uh, of your two parents. Um, every generation produce, somehow seems to retain the information about um, uh, male physiology and he, female physiology, male anatomy and female anatomy, and then seems to be able to regenerate this information. So even the even the most obvious, if you think about it for a second, there was a problem there. You had to explain these two peculiar contradictions. Mendel doesn't write about these contradictions. He went straight into the experiments. Um, and his experiments, Mendel's genius was to boil the experiment down to a very simple, very simple idea, uh, which is, uh, you know, if you take two traits and, and you've bred them to be true in, 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 in an organism, two strains of organisms, what happens when you mix them? What happens in the first generation? What happens in the second generation? And what he found was astonishing. What he found was that uh, if you did this experiment with peas, that you would uh, that these traits seem to behave in a very odd manner. They did first of all, they did not blend. Uh, one trait became dominant over the other. The second thing was that as they moved through the generations, the traits didn't go away. They had the capacity to be retained in some kind of um, you know indivisible or you know, we struggle for analogies, atomistic form. It couldn't be split apart. They didn't sort of, the wearing blender didn't blend them all away. They remained true to their original essence. And then he also found that, that, that they, they acted independently of each other. They were really like, somewhat like particles. Now, there's, been a, there's a lot of debate looking back at Mendel, whether he was solving the problem of heredity in general, whether he was interested in, in plant hybridization, so the smallness of his experiment. I happen to believe, having read Mendel over and over again, that he was very aware that his experiments had something important to say about how organisms create their form and function. So he, of course, didn't use the word gene. Um, he, if you read his papers, uh, and perhaps this is the way to read them in, in, in contemporary times, if you read the papers, you do get the sense of his uh, idea that information is involved. He codes uh, the idea of a gene. He called it a big A, big a and small a, for instance. So I, I don't know how hist history will, will sort of eventually solve, solve the question of how much Mendel knew about um, what he had eventually uh, found. But certainly, uh, to, to my reading, there's a strong hint that, number one, Mendel understood that what he found was very consequential, that traits uh, did not move in this wearing blender form, but in fact had a kind of Again, uh, we, we struggle with, with, with modern words for this, but had a kind of uh, atomic quality about them. They were indivisible, they were particulate, um, and they moved across generations in whole, in wholesome, in, in a kind of whole form. And, and that was his, that was the basic, uh, and, and, they were, and they followed, and this is an important piece as well, they followed mathematical laws and ratios, um, which would be very tough to capture if you were just sort of blending everything together. Well, there's one way, way to solve that problem. We can 
clone some of that DNA that was left on those manuscripts and raise the resulting human being in a monastery near a pea garden and then ask him what he's thinking? Well, to me, to me, what's interesting about all of this is that, you know, I, I was at a conference recently and I, I, I uh, one of the things that I tried to do was to remind people of the exact dimensions of that garden. Um, and of course, it is strikingly small. Uh, you know, it's 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 about the size of three rooms. And from those three rooms springs uh, all of this discussion today about gene cloning and ethics and et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, it's remarkable. So let's talk a little bit about what we now know that Mendel didn't and essentially the, the, the basics of information flow in biological systems. So you have you know, genes to RNA to amino acids to proteins. Just remind listeners of that sequence a little bit. There are two ways you can think about the information flow. Um, one way is that genes encode instructions. Um, they usually encode instructions by, um, uh, by the, they instruct the formation of RNA. This RNA itself uh, can, can give rise to important uh, functions in cells and bodies. But also this RNA then gets translated into proteins, um, which are strings of amino acids that can be even further chemically modified, but are fundamentally strings of amino acids. And these uh, strings of amino acids ultimately are responsible for much of the form and function that we see in living organisms. So there's there's, there's information transfer. You can think about genes as the, uh, the master code of instructions, the RNA as a kind of soft copy, although, as I said, it itself has uh, has important functions. It itself can carry out much of the important functions. And that RNA is translated into proteins, which uh, are responsible for most of, of what we know about um, features and functions of organisms. So, that, you know, the, the color of your hair, the color of your eyes, um, the signals that go between cells uh, that instruct cells how to be and what to be what to be. Many of these are either proteins themselves or they are products that are created by proteins. There is both the protein product of genetic transcription, and then there's just the fact that some of these products also regulate the function of genes as well. So that's an important piece. Um, the, the regulation of genes is, an, is, an, is, a, is a crucial uh, piece, and it was, um, it was known for a while that, that so the question, of course, is, um, you know, the cells in your eye and the cells in your, the cells in your retina and the cells in your blood have essentially, give or take some exceptions, the same uh, genetic information, the same DNA. Uh, how is it that the, the cells in your eye are, or your retina are very different from the cells in your, in your blood? And it turns out that genes are regulated. So, it's, so it, it, the, the analogy that I use is that um, although the, the symphonic score, if you were, if you uh, were to use that analogy, the musical score is the same in the eye and in the in the in the blood. The uh, eye cell chooses to play out certain parts of of that score, um, and in doing so, picking out certain bars, picking out certain um, sections, it uh, obviously the output uh, of uh, the genetic output that it has in RNA and proteins is different, and that is partly responsible for the difference between your uh, retina and your um, the cells in your retina and the cells in your cells in your blood. Hmm. And there, there's really no clear boundary between species. When we're, when we're talking about genes as information, there's no DNA that is intrinsically human, and there was no first human. 
both of those are correct, and they're very, very, they're very important consequences. So the fact that there is no, uh, that the genetic code seems, for the most part, there are few, uh, you know, there could be minor quibbles with that sentence, but for the most part, the genetic code is identical between blue whales and bacteria and humans. First of all, that's, that is a powerful, powerful um, argument for evolution. Um, we'll, we'll set that aside for a second, uh, but but in fact, that that there is that there is the, the flow of information has been conserved across organisms across the entire uh, biological world. And and you're right, there is nothing fundamentally human about human DNA. Um, the, the, if you were to put, as we, as as experiments have shown, you can put a yeast gene into a human cell, and for the most part, the human cell um, will. Uh, Take that yeast gene and make uh, RNA and proteins out of that yeast gene. You can take a viral gene and put it into, into a bacterium, and uh, for the most part, the virus will take that viral gene, make uh, RNA and protein out of that viral gene. And there's nothing intrinsic to one versus the other. Again, there there will be there are some minor sort of scientific quibbles about about what I just said, but that's for the most part true. And again, as the with respect to species, the boundary between species is blurry in time too there was no there was no moment where in the primate line if you, you had a time machine you could go back and point to the first human being they're exactly right um they, you know it depends on what we mean by by blurry in a genetic sense there's a there's continuity but but of course as 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 you know very well uh part of the formation of species is reproductive isolation so and, and thereby leading to uh, the, the the formation of species. So, so in a genetic sense, uh, you're absolutely right. There's a, there's there's continuity, um, but um, that itself, you know, doesn't make species. Species formation is. I mean, I discuss it a little bit. It's not the central subject of the book, but species formation is a little bit more complicated than than just genetic continuum. Yeah. So I, I want to just touch on this topic of eugenics because you can't avoid it for long. And as you just indicated, this is just part and parcel of understanding what genes are or even attempting to understand them. And this this idea that now obviously eugenics is a highly stigmatized word for good reason given fairly recent human history. And we can talk about that. But just this basic issue of caring about how the next generation turns out as a possible parent. I mean, if you, if you marry a person because they're smart and beautiful and not too crazy and you think they'll be a good parent, and you wouldn't select them as a mate if they weren't these things, this seems to amount to a very crude form of eugenics, doesn't it? Well, eugenics has a, uh, you know, kinship and mate selection, et cetera, um, are topics of their own. I mean, the way I like to think about eugenics, you're right, there's a, there's a, there's, it seems that there's an ancient desire uh, that we have, uh, which is ultimately related to the idea of, you know, how to best uh, create the best future for our children. That's, a, that's, uh, that's, an, that's an ancient um, desire. Eugenics has to do with, there's a, so it's, it's important to distinguish between those um, aspirations, uh, which are present in multiple cultures, present in ancient cultures. Eugenics is a kind of deliberation on that idea. It, it brings it to a, a particular kind of self-consciousness. And it is the idea that we can deliberately, prospectively, intentionally manipulate human heredity 
in order to create the the best human humans for the second in the next generation and in doing so improve the human race or species these were victorian words but we have to use them here um in general um so the forward march as it were um, i mean look the reason we're having this entire conversation i think is that is that we're at a pivotal moment in in history we'll talk i'm sure more about this but as you know just to give a, give 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 the listeners a kind of advanced flavor the national academy of sciences wrote a document saying that for the first time it would be permissible under extreme circumstances under you know conditions where there's a disease that causes extraordinary suffering to intervene on the human genome in a in a manner that would make that information perpetually permanently heritable in humans in other words in sperm and egg forming cells right so called germline genetic or genomic modification everyone who's listening to this should know or will know that this is a momentous uh point in history we are essentially saying that we are a machine that has begun to learn to read and write its own instructions so therefore uh, the question arises you know when in the past when have we what has happened when we've when we've been tempted to read and write our own instructions and 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 just to point out there's a there's a there's an ancient drive in here uh, the, you know the, the writings go back to plato and aristotle but uh, the the self-consciousness arises particularly um in the uh, late 18th and uh, 19th and 20th century so the word eugenics is coined by uh, francis galton a cousin of darwin's and uh, galton imagines that you know if that that he could that he can he and others can manipulate human heredity to produce better human beings and thereby improve the human condition in general alleviate suffering and improve the human condition in general and in fact one of the things that's important about eugenics in this first phase is that um it is embraced by many victorian progressives um it is thought to be a progressive idea it's thought to be an idea which we should be subscribing to because what else what what other better way that is there to improve the improve the human condition than take the you know take the horns and the reins of of heredity in your own hands um many many famous victorian progressives sign on to this uh, you can list them in the they're listed in the book and then there's a second phase the second phase is the tra- is that eugenics then moves to the united states so it undergoes a kind of manic adolescence in the united states this is a time from around 1910s to the 1930s when it is also the rage in the united states offices of uh, the eugenics record office is soon set up um and, and in 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 the in in england eugenics meant selective breeding in america the twist uh, twist was placed on it eugenics became the possibility of selective sterilization that if you were an imbecile or a moron or or had genetic uh, or, or was perceived to be genetic or hereditary problems we should remind people that those were technical terms imbecile moron yes, idiot remind people that, yeah the word, in fact yeah I, i point that you know it's pointed out in the book but the, I, i'm using these and they, they were they were they were loosely used but there were powerful technical terms invented to to sort of service the eugenic engine um uh, you know if you had a particular level of intelligence you were called an imbecile or a moron or a high grade moron low grade moron etc but but the point was that very soon by the by the late 1920s and the early 1930s uh, even the courts in the united states ha- had uh, agreed that in fact uh, uh, men and women who had these kinds of hereditary traits um should be uh, sterilized by state mandate um and thereby again in 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 the in the hopes of improving human heredity 
And um, many men and women were, in fact, sterilized uh, based on these grounds. And um, the story that I tell in the book um, is that of Carrie Buck, a young woman who was um, falsely probably found to have um, a, a, a hereditary uh, condition of imbecility, as I said, most likely because of, of um, really manipulation of information by the state. And she was forcibly sterilized. Um, the, the case rose to the Supreme Court. And Oliver Wendell Holmes, the so-called judicial moderate, said um, three generations of imbeciles is enough. That word enough um, signals something, a kind of impatience with, with you know, let's just, let's just get on with it. Um, you know, this is a time when better babies contests uh, were part of, uh, you know, a, 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 a fair. You, you go to a, a, a railroad fair or on the playground and, and there'd be a better babies contest to select the best babies, et cetera. There were films about sterilization um, in, in the United States. So that's the second phase. And the third phase is the one that we're most familiar with, is that, that the idea then metastasizes to Germany, where from selective breeding and selective sterilization, it morphs into selective extermination. If you, you know, if, if uh, in England, you know, we, we could breed the better uh, humans, in the United States, we could sterilize them and thereby prevent them their births. Then in, in, in Nazi Germany, the, the logic was extended. Why not just exterminate them? And on that grounds, um, initially, the German scientists began to exterminate, again, following the United States, um, those that are, con are considered genetically genetic defectives. This is their terminology. And very soon that morphed into the idea that, you know, genetic defectives, well, why not, you know, why not then exterminate racial defectives? Um, and thereby, the, that, that ultimately launched uh, what we know as um, sort of racial eugenics in Nazi Germany, the extermination of Jews and, and other races as well. Yeah, well, one clear variable here is just the, the means of intervention available to us. So in a world where the only choice is between selective breeding, forced sterilization, and exterminating people, well, clearly those methods are so crude that they would only tempt people who are either fundamentally deranged by some ideology or lacking in compassion to a degree that is just pathological. But what's interesting, but let me interrupt this, though. What's interesting is that, is that I, I agree and disagree with that. And that's the point of, part of, the, of the first part of this book. In fact, when, when, the, when the Victorians were speaking, or I should say when Galton and his associates were speaking about uh, human heredity in this manner... One thing I should say, I think I spoke a little too loosely in grouping selective breeding with the other two. I mean, I, I can see how selective breeding is, is tempting exactly for people. That, 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 in fact, the, the, we should remember um, and be very remind, remind ourselves that this history uh, was a gradual stepping into into blood, as it were, um, and and in fact, the, it's not as if the Nazis all of a sudden one day woke up and said, "Oh, you know, this would be a nice way to improve the human human race." Um, they followed um, the the road to uh, the 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 road to hell through the best genetic intentions of um, of of the progressives of the 1890s and 1900s in the United States and and in in England. Yeah, yeah, and. Again, it, it comes down to the technical means available. So, for instance, if, if the question is whether or not a person with a heritable disability should be allowed to have a child 
that will have that disability or will likely have that disability. That's a, a very interesting and difficult ethical question depending on what the disability is and the, the likelihood that some as yet unborn child will inherit it. But it becomes a trivially easy question to answer in favor of intervention if the intervention is trivial to apply. So if you told me that, well, this aspiring mother who doesn't want the state to meddle in her life at all, you know, stands a a 99% chance of giving birth to a deaf child, say, but if she'll simply take this vitamin that's otherwise harmless, you know, twice during her pregnancy, the risk of this will be removed, well then, yeah, she, the state has an interest in ensuring she takes that vitamin, right? It would be criminally negligent on her part not to take that vitamin. And so there's a continuum from that, you know, harmless and, and trivially easy intervention to the removal of her uterus, right, by a state. So, so uh, again, uh, absolutely correct. But, but to remind uh, ourselves, uh, and we're fast forwarding a little bit, but it's important to, to keep, keep reminding ourselves that in, in, in reality, genetics, the, the genetic information in humans has turned out to be more complicated and thereby raised a specter of more complicated questions. Yeah. So again, to use your analogy, to, to run along the structure of analogy, for many diseases, um, the, the, the odds are, turn out not to be 99% but turn out to be, you know, something like 20%, 30%. And some of these diseases are very dependent on other genes um, that that that, that child would inherit, so the context, and on the environment. Um, Just to give you a very concrete example, and and, and this is a very intimate example, because it happened to me recently. Um, I was giving a, a talk on cancer genetics, and after after that, a woman with a, a BRCA1 mutation, BRCA1 mutation, with a terrifying history of breast cancer, came to me to talk to me afterwards. Um, and she said her mother and her grandmother had died of breast cancer. Um, she was uh, she had had two children. She was thinking of, of having another one. The question she was asking is, should she and could she eliminate the uh, BRCA1 gene mutation forever from her lineage? And the answer is, if not now, very soon, uh, basically we have the technologies to allow her to do that. We have the technologies that, you know, she could do that by selectively implanting an embryo, which lacks that genetic variation. And if in the future, we might be able to do that by selectively changing the genomes of her sperm and egg carrying cells or making cells. So, um, but remember, in her case, the child will not have a 99% chance. We actually, what's interesting about it is we, is we can't really predict. We can predict that the child who's born with the BRCA1 gene mutation um, will have a a a multiply higher fold risk of having breast cancer in her future and other cancers, but breast cancer in her future. But we cannot, looking at her genome or looking at her, tell you whether it's going to be at age 30, at age 60, at age 70. Is it going to be an indolent variant of cancer? It's going to be likely very aggressive. Um, Where it's going to spread? All of this information is weirdly hidden from us. We can tell you that there is risk and there's propensity for risk. Is it a tenfold risk or something around there? You know, actually, I don't know what the newest numbers are for BRCA1, um, but at least, let's say tenfold. Well, so unless the BRCA gene confers some other benefit that I'm unaware of, what would be the argument against eliminating it? Well, the argument, it's, uh, there's some arguments about it against eliminating it. BRCA1 is, a, is an intermediate example. I'll give you another more extreme example in a second. But 
the, the arguments against eliminating it right now are we don't know exactly whether we can we can use these technologies in a predictive way. If you think about uh, the, the it's it's in the doing, as it were. Um, if you think about um, the if you think about the 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 intervention into sperm and egg forming cells, when we do these genetic interventions, we we're doing these in the lab with other genes, not with BRCA1, but with other genes that we've discovered. Um, when we're doing this in the lab, you know, they, they, these interventions, these technologies allow us to do powerful genetic interventions um, in stem cells, but they're, they, you know, they, they sometimes miss and they reach a different target. They're off target effects. Um, so that's one. The second one is that uh, the interventions that we're, that we're doing um, often, as I said, occur in the context of other, uh, of other genes. So we know very little about how other genes and environments influence it. Sure, BRCA1 will be an example of a, of a genetic uh, variation where we will ha and are, are, are already and will allow genetic interventions in the future. And in, insofar as it gets simpler, if, if you go to something like cystic fibrosis, then it's a pretty easy decision, isn't it, to eliminate it? It is an it, well, it is an easy decision to allow the elimination. Socially speaking, it's an easy decision to allow the elimination because of the because of the fact that, that the disease that it's linked to causes extraordinary suffering. Whether an individual woman chooses to or not to exercise that decision, I think, should be left up to her. Um, and, 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 you know, the point is that it, it, one of the things that the history is teaching us, I think, is that, that state mandates are, are not, very, not very successful here because they end up intervening on individual liberties. Um, so um, the, state, the states can provide guidance. Um, they can provide the options of what would happen. Um, but um, it seems to me that, that once the state got into the business of, of uh, force, forcing a, a woman to have only one you know, a, a prescribed kind of genetic lineage, I think for me that steps a little too far. But now is that intuition of yours technology dependent? I think you're picturing kind of a forced in vitro conception as opposed to a natural one, whereas if the intervention could be as easily applied as taking a harmless pill, then do you still feel the same way about it? Again, I'm talking about cystic fibrosis. I, I, I think I would feel the same way about it. I don't think it's intervention dependent. Um, I think it has to do with uh, uh, allowing uh, humans the liberty to choose uh, what kind of heredity they choose to transmit. Um, and there's some historical precedent for this, you know. Um, obviously, uh, uh, Down syndrome is a, is a is a good uh, is an important historical precedent for this, which is that the the state provides guidance uh, as to what the um, what, what what the life of a, of a child with Down syndrome may be like. Um, and even there, we very 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 much know there's a wide spectrum. Um, you know, Down syndrome is is um, has a wide spectrum. But of course, there are important uh, medical consequences of Down syndrome. The state provides guidance, but it doesn't go and tell women that, you know, you can't have that child. Right. I, I, it seems to me that cystic fibrosis is a clearer case, I mean, maybe not the clearest possible, but getting there both in the simplicity of the underlying genetics and in the cloud without a silver lining outcome. And then when you when you try to map it on to other ethical imperatives, so for instance, just a reminder. I mean, this is a side note, Sam, but it's yeah. an important reminder. Uh, just a reminder to remind us that we think that the cystic fibrosis gene variant that now causes disease was likely selected 
um, at a time when uh, gastrointestinal diseases like typhoid um, were rampant throughout Europe, um, and that gene variant likely protected people from dying. Now, this is not, I, I'm not trying to be, um, so, you know, wax eloquent about a history that's long past. We are, in, most countries in the United, in the West, do not have these uh, threats of typhoid. But, but, but just a reminder that these gene variants uh, were, in some cases, selected for very particular environmental conditions. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a great point that I actually want to get to in, in a slightly different context, because that presents a fascinating limitation on our ability to use this technology, even if we get our heads straight ethically. But I'm just thinking back to the to this particular intervention, the feeling that I should oblige my children to wear seatbelts, whether they want to or not, and whether I want them to or not, and that the state has an interest in my doing that because it's not much fun to see needlessly injured or dead children show up at the ER day after day when they could have just been wearing a seatbelt. Why isn't there a why isn't there a seatbelt law for genetics? Yeah, seatbelt law for unborn children on some level. Again, when the... I think that, I think that you're, you're pointing out exactly the reason. The, 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 because seatbelts are, we, we do not, we, our aspirations and, and personhood um, are not linked in the same way to seatbelts as they are to, um, to heredity. Um, and that may be because of vast cultural uh, uh, reasons. Uh, it may be because of of, of an enormous um, a particular interest in heredity, but but uh, but we have we we have carved out a special place uh, within ourselves, within our cultures that says, look, the 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 autonomy that we have around heredity um, is an autonomy that that should be respected unless there are truly extraordinary circumstances, and even when there are extraordinary circumstances, you know, I, I I've um, taken care of many. Uh, children with Down syndrome who have uh, leukemia. In fact, this is one of the uh, terrifying things that happens. Um, and so there is no doubt that that is an extraordinary circumstance and there's extraordinary suffering involved. But even in such cases, um, we've decided, partly because of the history and partly because of the special place we've carved out for our aspirations around heredity, to provide strong guidance, but not step beyond the lines of strong guidance. We've left it to individuals. It's just a fascinating area ethically, which I, I haven't thought as much about as I, as I would like. Because just in hearing you say that now, it really is what we're privileging the aspirations of the parents over the experience of their future children in a way that wouldn't make a lot of sense if the children already existed. Well, so, so, you know, there are several philosophers and biologists and geneticists who are grappling with this question now. So, you know, to what extent do you have to take into account the unborn voice of the, of the child? It really is an, it's a fascinating and important debate. But the point here being that I've given you my perspective on, on this, but the point here being that, being that this debate will become increasingly central, yeah. increasingly central as we learn to read and write genomes more and more. Um, right now, uh, we are in a kind of learning phase, a steep learning phase of reading and writing. Um, we are like the child who's just begun to discover the language. Um, so again, to remind ourselves, if, you're, if your genome was written out in, in, in standard print, your genome, Sam, would be um, 70 or 80 full sets of the Encyclopedia Britannica. Um, it, it would you know, fill your whole house. Um, we are beginning to learn of course, you now know through gene sequencing that, in fact, the active parts of that encyclopedia, not the entire, entire encyclopedia, 
but the active parts of the encyclopedia you can you can obtain the sequence for for about two thousand odd dollars. The first one, the full sequence for the first human was was about three billion. That was in two thousand and one. Um, the prediction, I just came back from a conference in Seattle, the prediction is that it'll fall down to about $300 per person. Not the full genome, but the active parts of the genome. Um, so reading and writing that information, reading it in the sense, understanding what that code predicts for the future, um, and, and writing it, um, understanding uh, how and where to intervene on it, change one word in that 70-set encyclopedia, is going to be the central question, or well, one of the central questions that our children will face, and the conversation we just had, to what extent should we mandate, to what extent should we dictate, uh, are going to be questions that our children grapple with. This will, and I, and I keep making this point, these technologies to intervene on human heredity will seem, will make the technologies that we seem to be obsessed with today, like social media, et cetera, seem like absolute child's play. They will brush them aside like a, like a, like a fly on a summer day, um, because they will get to, again, these very old um, human aspirations about controlling our children and ourselves. Yeah, and just to point out the technological trend you just sketched there, that's $3 billion down to $300 to sequence a, a genome in about, what, 20 years? That's a 10 million-fold reduction in the cost. It's incredible. And, and the one thing I, I will add to this, and maybe we'll have time to discuss this, but just to, just to, just to keep people current, we are currently using computational tools and human tools to inspect genomes, to read and write. And the amount of data that we've collected is quite small compared to the total amount there is. So, you know, tens of thousands of, and maybe go, going into the hundreds of thousands of individual human genomes. But imagine now on increasing that, that parent data set and then unleashing tools like deep learning uh, on, 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 on that data set and picking up patterns that would not be apparent to the human eye or potentially to even standard computational um, ways to mine information. Imagine now, for every human being, being able to create a kind of predictive algorithm about their future. Um, it really distorts and has, has an effect on how we think of ourselves. I'll give you one very concrete example. Um, another woman um, with the, keeping on the same breast cancer theme, another woman with the BRCA1 gene mutation, has two daughters, and she told me the story. Um, she was very concerned and got herself uh, sequenced for BRCA1 and her two children. The two daughters are 11 and 9. So, um, and one of them turned out to be positive uh, for the, carrying the mutation. So the question which was immediately raised to me was, you know, these children have not even developed breasts. They are in their, in their adolescence, and yet Already, the mother's relationship with one of them and both of them has fundamentally changed. She does not see her two daughters as the same anymore. Now, imagine doing this not across one gene, but across the you know, several thousand genes that human beings have, um, parsing our, us in these kinds of propensities, parsing us in these kinds of probability, probabilities, even if they're probabilistic. Um, well, that, that, that's, a, that's a point worth flagging because people will need to learn to think about probability in ways that are far more insightful and, and ethically relevant than they have been led to thus far. I mean, but we, we are, we're terrible about thinking about the implications of probability, and, and you can give people the same probabilities in different guises, you know, the probability of a loss versus the, the probability of a gain. And and their feelings about the scenarios completely shift, and, and, and they've been given the same information. 
and, that, and that's been documented in psychological study after psychological study, that same idea. Um, but, but, but yes, absolutely getting to that central point of, the, of, of this, which is to say that, and let me be very clear about something, and, and it's very clarified in the book many times, and let me be clear about it yet again, that um, in most cases, for most human features, genes are not autonomous. They interact with environments, they interact with chance to produce the ultimate feature. Most human features um, that we commonly see are the products of multiple genes, inter gene variants interacting with each other, interacting with environments and interacting with chance. Um, so not only is there the probability of how to, the combinatorial business of the genome, which gene variants you inherit in what combination, but of course there's a role for the environment which, is, which has to be factored in and may be factored in in the future, and a role for chance, uh, which may be factored in in the future. And there's this additional problem which you just raised a moment ago, which is that there's no clear boundary between what's wrong with us and what's right with us. And this is a point you actually spell out in your book at some length. The genes that make people creative, for instance, could be some of the same genes, and it seems rather likely that some of them are, that predispose people to conditions like bipolar disorder. And I mean, there's, there's evidence, I, I think, with respect to intelligence as well, that, that some of the genes that are highly correlated with intelligence are also correlated with certain diseases like torsion dystonia. So it could just be, it may be that there's some, in the end, engineering solution by which we can get around this, but it could be that there will always be trade-offs here, that if you're going to grab the dial that can be turned in the direction of slightly more intelligence, uh, or even much greater intelligence, or probability thereof, you, are, you have your hand on the same dial that is increasing the likelihood that your child will be in a wheelchair. Well, I mean, the examples that we know best, I gave you a couple. Um, cystic fibrosis is one of them. Um, that gene variant was selected for in, we think, in conditions where uh, endemic typhoid was rampant. Um, sickle cell anemia is another one. That gene variant was selected for uh, because it protects. Um, if, you have one if you have one copy, it protects from uh, malaria and, and potentially cerebral malaria. Um, and and so you know there are there are more and more isolated examples of this um, over time, and we'll you know and I I try to describe this very clearly in in the book, which is a, an idea which which medical geneticists began to have in the 1960s and 1970s, uh, particularly as we began to understand the human genome in terms of medical genetics. You know, when the, when the genome, when, the, when genetics was an abstraction, or, you know, bacteria, this is what happens, and this is how regulation happens in abstraction, um, things had seemed somewhat simpler. But once you came into the human genome, all the things that you and I have talked about began to be true or began to read true. Most human traits are not the product of single genes, but of multiple genes. Our capacity to manipulate multiple genes um, is fundamentally constrained, although changing. We'll come to that in a second. Um, the capacity to predict um, future phenotype, uh, future traits, future characteristics from a single genome remains in its infancy and may be fundamentally constrained because of environmental and chance effects. And the possibility that there are trade-offs uh, in, 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 when you select for something that you inherently uh, toggle the switch in one direction and, and toggle the switch in the wrong direction for something else may be true for certain gene variants. Again, the moment you start talking about this, you, you feel the presence of, of various taboos all around you. And um, there's just this fundamental fact that people are uncomfortable hearing about the genetic basis of 
of many things. I mean, certainly, certainly mental traits and things like mental illness, because they they assume that spelling this out likely produces suffering in people and likely would lead to social policies that are counter to what we what we want ethically and politically. But I think we should also notice ways in which it can alleviate suffering in a very straightforward way. So you take the, a condition like schizophrenia, and, and this is something you discuss in your book. It used to be believed that this condition was produced by bad parenting and that you had this notion of a, a schizophrenogenic mother. And now we know that genes play an enormous role in this disease. And I, I think the concordance between identical twins is something around 80%. Just imagine having been among the, this generation of mothers who were blamed for the mental illness of their children and blamed in terms of a psychosexual mythology that was more or less invented out of whole cloth by Freud. I mean, it seems like a genetic understanding of a condition like schizophrenia is just a huge ethical gain, and the gain arrives almost immediately. Correct. So, although you're absolutely correct, we, we understand so much more and, and really have evolved a kind of a sense of a deeper understanding of schizophrenia. But also, um, the, the example of schizophrenia has reminded us that uh, in schizophrenia, uh, particularly in, in familial schizophrenia, the kind that my family has, we're yet to find um, powerful genetic, uh, a, a mechanistic understanding of the disease. It will come, I believe. Uh, but, but in fact, yes, it's, it's alleviated certain kinds of ways of thinking about schizophrenia that were very incriminating and, and ultimately uh, destroyed uh, families and souls. I want to mention something you said in, a, in your TED talk, I believe, which struck me as fairly flabbergasting. You said of the, the estimated one million physiological pathways in the human body that can be targeted by medical therapies or cures for diseases, we can currently target about 250 of them. Yeah, that number came, came from an article which I can send you at some point of time. Um, obviously, it's a, it's a little bit of a guesswork there, right? So um, uh, someone tried to estimate the number of biological pathways for which there are t- targets exist, and that number's increasing. But yes, I would say ballpark, that sounds right to me. On its face, that's a very depressing ratio, although the, the flip side is that it suggests an almost limitless promise of medicine in the future. I mean, if what we're doing now is just the tiniest, tiniest fraction of what could conceivably be done with more or less the technology we already have, which is to say, you know, pharmacology, you can see it one of two ways. It's either depressing or, or a picture of, of limitless promise. Sure, and this is one, one, one important piece to intervene on that, which is that there's a denominator problem, which is that um, the, the, the parts of that equation that are responsible for disease or can be uh, manipulated for enhancement um, may be a tiny fraction to start with. In other words, um, much, of the, uh, much, of the, much of these pathways, these proteins, these, uh, uh, the, the, the consequential cogs and wheels much of them might be sort of the, the bedrock on which human physiology and structure and form are built. And therefore, intervening on them wouldn't, would neither enhance nor, uh, nor cure disease. It would basically either create a dysfunctional human being or, 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 or none at all. So we don't know what part, what fraction, it's a denominator problem. We don't know what fraction of those million-odd pathways, uh, uh, cogs and wheels, as it were, 
what fraction of them are relevant in human pathology and what fraction can be manipulated for, if you're interested in enhancement, what fraction can be manipulated uh, for enhancement. Now, what's the state of genetic medicine at the moment? And perhaps you want to talk about CRISPR here and, and, and whether you think it will fulfill its promise. So genetic medicine is a very wide term. So it's probably better to be a little bit narrower about it because, uh, you know, some people would claim every medicine is, you know, all kinds of medicine is genetic medicine. So, you know, ultimately diseases act on uh, proteins and pathways, which are themselves the product of genes. So you could make the argument. So let's talk particularly about gene therapy. Maybe that's a natural way to restrict it. So there are, there are a couple of ways to imagine gene therapy. Um, but the big, uh, the bright line distinction is between so-called somatic gene therapy and germline gene therapy. Um, and, and in full disclosure, I'm involved in, 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 uh, in, in quite a lot of somatic gene therapy work. So, um, so, so let me just uh, walk us through these terms. Uh, so somatic comes with the word soma, which means body. So this is gene therapy in which you're either introducing a gene, foreign gene, foreign material, or any kind of genetic material into a cell, often into a stem cell in a human body, and that cell divides, replicates, or maybe doesn't divide, nonetheless, contains that altered genetic information and thereby changes its function and, and starts doing a different function. So a, a classic example would be an attempt to put the functioning version of a um, functioning version of a clotting factor gene in people who have a hereditary problem with blood clotting, uh, such as hemophilia. So that is distinct from so-called germline gene therapy, in which what, what the attempt is, is to change the genetic information in a cell that's capable of producing sperm and eggs. Um, and ultimately, once it, once it does produce sperm and eggs, it basically now carries on, goes on to the next generation, and then in perpetuity, it carries on forever. So that's a bright line distinction between somatic and germline gene therapy. And until the 19... 90s, 2000s, um, the first attempts were in germline gene therapy using things like viruses. So viruses can carry genetic material into cells. Um, uh, the particular viruses that have evolved over millennia to carry genetic material into cells, you can manipulate those viruses, you can insert genes into them, and then thereby allow those viruses to bring genetic material into human cells. Um, and that's one kind of gene therapy. And then this, this world was turned somewhat upside down um, by the discovery of new technologies to change uh, uh, genetic information. And the one that, that, is his, that, that most people will want to know about is a technology called CRISPR and Cas9. Now, do you want me to go into the technology or, or, or to tell you what the, what the, what the upshot of the, uh, the, the, the upshot is? How, how detailed do you want to get it? You could make a gloss on the, on the actual mechanics of it, but more the upshot, I think. Yeah. So, so the, the, the glossing over the mechanics of it, the upshot is that uh, CRISPR and Cas9 is an ancient, uh, are parts of an ancient uh, bacterial system that allow us to make intentional cuts in uh, a genome of choice. And why is that, why is that relevant? Well, again, to return to the encyclopedia analogy, you could go into um, you know, the, the encyclopedia and say, go to page 347 in volume um, 16 and, and cut the word ATGC there and, and hopefully only there. Um, we'll come back to that in a second, but hopefully only there, sparing everything else. Um, and if you combine it with some other techniques, not only can you make the cut there, you can replace that ATGCC 
with a CTGCC or a GTGCC. So obviously, you know, what if that is the BRCA1 gene or what if that's the cystic fibrosis gene? Um, and what if you make those changes not in a cell that's a somatic cell, but a germline cell, a cell that is sperm and eggs? So, so CRISPR and Cas9, among other things, these kind of bacterial systems, I don't want to, they're, they're really systems or technologies that allow us to make intentional, deliberate changes in genomes. And that we couldn't do easily with, uh, with the kind of viral-based gene therapies that we had in the past. Um, so they allow a, a, an unprecedented level of being able to manipulate uh, genomes and potentially not only genomes of other organisms, uh, mosquitoes, parasites, pests, crops, etc., but also, of course, the human genome. And, and if you combine these technologies with what we are learning about um, stem cells, sperm and egg-producing stem cells, then all of a sudden you have the kinds, uh, you have a really unprecedented power to be able to manipulate the germline of organisms and humans in the future. That's yeah. the option. Yeah. And obviously the, the bright line between the somatic therapy and the germline is that all future descendants now inherit whatever changes you make, as opposed to the single person you have provided the therapy to. But, you know, I guess in, in certain cases, that strikes me as a, a very easy decision, and in others, an impossible one. And it's, it does come down to just the probabilities involved and how sure we are we know what the effects will be of our, of our intervention. Right. So there's a nest of questions. There are a nest of ethical questions, and there's a nest of biological questions or technical questions. And of course, they're interrelated. They, they crisscross with each other. And you're pointing out all of, all of them. So some of them are biological and technical questions. You know, what are the off-target effects? What is the likelihood that we'll hit that particular word in encyclopedia and by mistake not erase another word on page, you know, 476? Um, so that's, those are technical biological questions. But then, of course, there are other questions like, uh, you know, under what circumstances should we allow this? Um, and, and this goes brings us back full circle with, as I said, the National Academy uh, report, which other, other academies, other panels around the world will eventually produce their own versions of this. But, um, but, but in that case, and, and, in, and in the gene, um, we identify, I try to identify some circumstances where we're beginning to open up this uh, germline technology. There's also some ethical questions surrounding this work that really just go to the, the sociology of science, I guess. First of all, there are, there are patent fights between the developers of CRISPR, right? I think it's the Broad Institute and, and Berkeley. And then there's just this whole phenomenon of having government-funded work that is, in effect, privately owned and becomes hugely profitable. And then you basically you have the public paying twice for the results of this work. How do you view the ethics of enriching yourself based on research that was taxpayer-funded? I mean, how, is, is there something interesting to sort out there? Yeah, many of the interesting things, things to sort out there. Um, I, I've written a little bit about the patent issues around genetics um, in, in, in the gene. Uh, you know, it's, it's so new, this arena, is that the courts are still trying to figure out what to, how to make sense of it. And just the case to point out was the BRCA1 gene mutation was there was an attempt to patent uh, the testing for that gene mutation um, because, uh, after all, that was the product of discovery of, of, of scientists. But on the other hand, uh, you could say, well, why is a BRCA1 gene mutation any different from your nose? It, it's a part of your body. Uh, it's a part of the human body. Um, so where is the invention there? So it, it was a series of complicated debates that ensued. 
But of course, this has been carried to its next level with, with the debates around gene editing, uh, these technologies that allow you to intervene on, on genetic information in, in a deliberate manner. Um, and the two sides of the debate are, um, sure, these tools are borrowed from the microbiological world. So bacteria invented them, really, through evolution. Um, but uh, they were refined and changed and programmed and reprogrammed by individual scientists. So there's so the one concern, one concern is, should these be patentable at all? That's question one. The second question is, um, who made the discovery first? What's the evidence that any one of the teams made the discovery first. And the third set of questions, which is, is um, if the discovery was in fact paid for through government dollars, uh, should individuals or companies be allowed to uh, use uh, these same kinds of tools to sell them back to us, as it were? I'll tell you my views on, on all three of these questions, um, but of course they differ. So in, in reverse order, should, should, should they be allowed? I think, you know, I think, as a, as I think it's important to keep the cycle of innovation alive, I think it's important to give important incentives, substantial incentives to scientists as they bring the products of their science into human lives. Um, cancer is one example um, that I see on a daily basis. I think most people would feel that the structure of, in, in, of incentives currently it has, has moved, the needle has tipped way too far. I'm speaking for myself. And that we need to be able to identify inventions that are that uh, for which where the line of credit and substantial um, uh, substantial compensation is given, and when that line gets crossed. So it's a case by case uh, question. Uh, as you can imagine, this is uh, richly hotly contested. There's no one formula here. I think uh, richly and hotly contested arena. Um, Many people, including myself, feel that um, the first movers, the original inventors, should be given substantial uh, 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 rewards. The people who come later and, and sort of pile on to them, the Me Too's, um, should be given much less. I also feel that the patents should not be extended indefinitely based on you know, creating new applications for them, but much of the reward should come up front. But once you're done, you're done. Um, but, so these are, these are sort of the gory details, as it were. The, se the second and the third question I'll answer quickly in the interest of time. The, the second question was, um, uh, or one question was, um, should these be patentable? I think in the case of CRISPR and Cas9, the amount of human intervention that went into the process after the initial discovery is substantial. A, a lot of things had to be done. Things had to be hooked together. Uh, the, the, the biological system invented by microbes, uh, by, by bacteria, was designed to kill viruses, uh, to chop their genomes and DNA up. We redesigned it to focus it on the human genome and in a programmable way. So I think there's a good case to be made that there was uh, substantial innovation involved. I should say that anyone who wants to patent my nose is free to do it. It's broken at least once, and uh, I consider it a Creative Commons nose. So, <laughs> right. And mine is not particularly attractive either, so I'm, I'm happy to give it up. So um, I just want to take a few minutes to talk about cancer. Unfortunately, this is not informed by my having read your much-celebrated book, The Emperor of All Maladies, on the topic, but it's probably safe to say that everyone listening to this podcast has either had or will have some encounter with cancer. They're either going to get it or someone close to them will. My father died of cancer. I have a close member of my family who just went through a major ordeal with it. it amazingly, he seems to be someone who is among the tiny percentage of people who, who seems to have successfully treated 
uh, or been treated for stage four pancreatic cancer. First, I want to ask you, why does cancer have this unique status? I mean, why, why are people left battling cancer? You don't hear of people battling heart disease. Is this based on the, the range of treatments that, that exist for it? Or how do you think of the, the stigma? Well, it's a very diverse disease, a disease of enormous diversity, genetic diversity. And um, there's not one cancer, but many cancers. Uh, it is a disease unlike heart disease, unlike most other diseases, where the level of genetic diversity is enormous. And now we're beginning to understand it's not just genetic diversity. There's also a component, a powerful component of evolution here. Cancer cells are constantly evolving, and they're evolving by creating their own environments, their own microenvironments. They defy the immune system uh, through a process of selection and evolution, et cetera. So it's a very different kind of battleground, as it were, compared to heart disease. Does it make sense to keep classifying cancer in terms of their organs of origin, like lung and breast and prostate, is that, or, or is our thinking changing? Well, we're, we're kind of in a, halfway, in a halfway moment about that. It certainly made sense initially from, from the standpoint, but now the, now the genetics is, is redefining that. So basically, it might turn out that your brain cancer could share some genes with, with, with a breast cancer. Now, that said, um, when we try to treat based on these kind of new genetic um, paradigms, um, those are still not very successful in part because somehow or the other, the cancer cell seems to remember its tissue of origin. So some, the truth is somewhere in between. Interesting. And finally, is, is there any important difference between childhood and adult cancer? Um, it seems to be that there, there's some fundamental differences between them. They, childhood cancers tend to uh, be more responsive to many chemotherapies. And the quick answer is we don't know exactly why. All right. I am sorry to have given uh, one of the most important diseases such uh, short shrift in the presence of one of the most important writers and thinkers on the topic. This is just going to justify a uh, another podcast before we all get cancer, Siddhartha. <laughs> Thank you so much. Okay. Thanks a lot. Thank you. <laughs>